This is Undaunted Life, a man's podcast. I'm your host, Kyle Thompson. Let's get into it. All right, guys, today we got a special guest on the podcast. His name is Frank Viola. He is a best-selling author, blogger, and speaker, and his ministry is known as The Deeper Journey. Viola's mission is to help serious followers of Jesus know their Lord more deeply so they can experience real transformation and make a lasting impact. He's also the host of the Christ is All and The Deeper Journey podcast. He's written... At this point, I mean, it's close to a few dozen books. Many of them have been bestsellers. Bestsellers include Hang On, Let Go, Insurgents, Reclaiming the Gospel of the Kingdom, Jesus Manifesto, Pagan Christianity, and his latest book that we spend most of our time talking about today, which is The 48 Laws of Spiritual Power. And so in this interview, we spend the overwhelming majority of the time going through this book. So this book was written almost as an answer to Robert Greene's The 48 Laws of Power, which again is on our book list, uh, is on our website, The 100 Books Every Modern Christian Man Should Read List. It's a top 10 book for me. And so he wasn't really aware of that book. He became aware of it. And then he thought, you know, what if we wrote the 48 laws of spiritual power, but in the different laws, some of the laws that we're going to go over in this podcast is never hurt God's people, detest celebritism, refuse to take offense, receive correction, distinguish between critics, resist bitterness, defy the conventional wisdom, stay in school. And, and there's others. And we kind of had a few tendrils that we came off in and talked about this and kind of weave back to that. But I really enjoyed my time with him today. I think it's going to be well with your time. So guys, without further ado, Let's get into it. Frank Viola, welcome to Undaunted Life of Man's podcast. Glad to be on. All right, so we're going to start as generically as possible here. So I guess we'll go two-part first question, okay? So we like to just kind of ease into it before we get into all the other crazy stuff. How did you become a follower of Christ? Because obviously that's a, a very uh, very much so a center point of everything that you do. And then I guess specifically what led you to become a writer and speaker in the Christian space? Because you can do one without the other, obviously. Right. Well, I came to the Lord uh, in a dramatic way when I was 16. I had a head-on collision with Jesus Christ that wrecked me, and it basically left me hungry and thirsty uh, to know Him and to know everything about Him, and that led me on an odyssey of many different churches and so forth, uh, parachurch organizations, uh, groups, movements, etc. I've been I've been all over <laughs> uh, the Christian map. And, uh, and then um, I just started to write. This is before the internet. It's when we had the bulletin board um, and, and people communicated uh, online that way. And I just started to write what I was discovering, uh, discovering about church, discovering uh, from the scriptures, discovering about the Lord. And it was resonating with a lot of people. And so that turned into uh, these short articles I would write. When we finally did have the internet, I started a blog, frankviola.org. People can check it out. And um, a publisher found me, wanted to start publishing me. So it was really an accident. I didn't set out to become an author or anything like that. I was just uh, paying it forward. The things I was learning and discovering that were absolutely altering my life I began to write about. And, and I guess the core thing here, uh, so if people are not familiar with my work, there was a burning question in my heart from very early on when I came to Christ, and that was, there has to be more than this. What is it? And I'm talking about the churches I attended, the movements I was a part of, 
um, Bible studies I was going to, people I was listening to in leadership, there has to be more than this. Mm -hmm. What is it? And so at, that is the heartbeat behind every book I've written, every blog post I've written, all of my podcast episodes. There's got to be more than this. And so my ministry uh, is called The Deeper Journey <laughs> because there is something deeper and higher and richer than what most of us Christians have been exposed to. Okay. Well, I appreciate you getting into all that uh, detail and all those aspects and guys that will all be in the show notes. So you can check out everything there, but we're going to spend basically the majority of our time today talking about one of your recent books and maybe actually your latest book. And it's the 48 laws of spiritual power. And the subtitle is uncommon wisdom for greater ministry impact. And so obviously this is, you know, an ode or, you know, in the vein of Robert Greene's seminal work, the 48 laws of power that is on our 100 books. Every modern Christian man should read list on our website. That is a top 10 book for me, even as a Christian. And I've had people ask me about that for like, hey, that's a book essentially talking about, you know, ma manipulation. But it's like, hey, this is how a lot of people in the world think. And so it doesn't do us any favors to ignore how people think. And it's also just a great summary of different parts of history and different parts of philosophy. So an absolutely tremendous book. So I guess why write the 48 laws of spiritual power? Right. Mine's called the 48 laws of spiritual power. Well, I actually came across Green's book, never heard of the author, never heard of the book. Uh, about a decade ago, somebody put it on audio for me, and it was the first time I was listening to audiobooks. I only got through about four or five chapters. And the reason is because, from my perspective, it's a dissertation in the flesh. <laughs> it shows you how a carnal, fleshly person lives and acts to try to gain earthly power, which is really, if you're in the world and you, you don't know Christ, 90% uh, plus of human beings, that's their goal. You know, they want to gain power in relationships. They want to gain power at their job. They want to gain power uh, with money, uh, career, all of that. That's the name of the game, you know? And, and so I basically was listening to this and I thought, what if we had a book on the laws of God's power, which are absolutely opposite <laughs> of what Green was writing about. The laws of God's power are countercultural, they're counterintuitive, they're counternatural. And 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 not only that, but they actually transform people. Um, they transform the individual who's operating by that power, and they transform the people uh, who who uh, are serving others with that power. So it basically inspired the idea, and that's about it. So um, from there, I just began to excavate my my life of 40-plus years of ministering to people, being in ministry, serving others in all different capacities to distill them down to, to 48 laws, which I did. <laughs> um, now, there's some extra chapters at the end of the book that, that drill down more deeply, but that was the inspiration. And um, yeah, I'm, I'm glad I did it because the response so far has been amazing, especially from pastors and ministry leaders and Christians who are quote unquote lay people. I hate that word, um, but who are doing some kind of ministry where they're teaching Sunday school class or they're evangelizing or they're helping other people who are in need. It, it really has had an overwhelming response. Hey, if I can sell, if this book can sell even a fraction of Green's book, I think we'd see a revolution. Um, and you did you know this? I bet you didn't know this, Kyle. You know who the major audience for the 48 Laws book, Green's book is? 
Prisoners. It, it's prisoners and, that's right, prisoners and celebrities. <laughs> yeah, and that's another thing to kind of go back to my overall thought is like there's a lot of books that are on my book list that don't come from a Judeo-Christian ethic or worldview. And it's one of those things where, I forget, I think it was Mark Driscoll or whoever said it first, but there are things from culture or from the world that we can accept, reject, and redeem. And there are certainly things in that book that you can do all three with. You can just accept the wisdom. You can reject it outright as you know heretical or whatever. And then there's other things that you can redeem that, that you can use. For our time here today, I think it would be, again, there's 48 laws. We obviously can't talk about all of them. Guys, if you want to check out the book, it is in the show notes. But I just want to pick out some different laws and then read some quotes and then discuss them a little bit further. So let's just start with law one. Law one from your book is never hurt God's people. Let me read this quote to you here. Herein lies a critical principle. When we lose, lay ourselves or lay our lives down and absorb mistreatment for Jesus' sake, then God gives his power to us. And so whenever I first read that, the, the my first thought in my head is like, well, is this, does Frank want us to be doormats? And like, I know that's not what you would say and certainly not how you would, you know, frame it. But that that's kind of the thing that I see a lot of Christians, especially when you get farther into kind of the pacifist side of theology. It's like, hey, you know, just let people say whatever they want to say. Let people do whatever they want to do with you. Let them even do things to you physically and just kind of take it. But just give me a little bit more as to, you know, never hurt God's people. Well, in the context of, of that chapter, that's clearly not what I'm talking about. But I am talking about what Jesus preached and proclaimed in unvarnished terms. But if somebody strikes you on the cheek, you don't hit them back. You turn the other cheek. Now, that's totally counter-cultural. Uh, right, right. Total, totally counterintuitive. Uh, I'll just speak to the men here who are married. Uh, if you try to win your arguments with your wife, you ultimately are going to end up losing. OK, but if you lay your life down for her and you lose and basically the principle of the cross, when Jesus said, if you're going to follow me, take up your cross, it is the most courageous and powerful thing a human being can do. And a real man knows how to lay his life down. A real man knows how to lose. A real man knows how to turn the other cheek. And when you do that, Jesus Christ is winning. And not only that, when he wins, you win. All right. And so never hurt God's people. This is about the fact that many people in ministry, and I'm talking about pastors, and ministry leaders, they tend to be um, individuals who use God's people for their own agendas, many of them, not all of them, right? But many of them, and will actually uh, not refuse the cross in their own life, refuse to lose and instead try to win, and by doing that, trample over the Lord's people. There are a, uh, a countless number of, of Christians who are hemorrhaging and uh, bloody and beat up, and some of them bleeding out because they, they have been hurt by leaders. And the reason is because many of these leaders have never known the cross in their own life. They have defended themselves. They have gone on, gone on counterattack. Um, and, and so never hurt God's people is a message that is for such people. It's for all of us, really, because, you know, the way to win in the kingdom of God is to lose. All right. And, and it's to lay your life down. And this is all over the Gospels. And basically, Paul talked a lot about it in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. You know, he said it is through death, ourselves lie, laying our lives down for others, that we find the life of God and we minister the life of God. And I think this is one of the reasons why there's so little spiritual power in so many ministries today, because there is no understanding of what 
the cross is in our practical lives among many, many uh, leaders today. So it's, it's, it's a chapter all about that. All right. I certainly appreciate that additional context. <clears throat> Excuse me. I want to go ahead and move to law five. And so this is detest celebritism. So that's not a word that most people use, but obviously it's just, you know, celebrity as an ism. And then, so this is the, these quotes here are from this chapter. These are some of my favorite quotes from the entire book. So they're kind of spread out throughout the chapter, but I'm just going to read them back to back because they all kind of coalesce together. Perhaps the greatest way to shipwreck your faith is to embrace the celebrity culture that dominates the contemporary Christian world. This culture, which is at, which is a spiritual plague, encourages God's people to treat Christian leaders like royalty. The celebrity pastor is both the salesman and the product. Then, one day, the spiritual shallowness beating in his breast floats to the surface for all to see. His soaring career suddenly deflates as all the helium escapes and he implodes. The two outstanding marks of a celebrity are superficiality and inaccessibility. But God has no place for celebritism in his kingdom. So, obviously, this is a bugaboo for a lot of people. Again, people like to normally just attack the mega church. I'm trying to be, you know, more careful because there are very, very healthy churches that are enormous that take discipleship seriously. Obviously, you know, examples of those. I know examples of those. So I want to be, you know, very, very clear in my language, but there are a lot of people out there breaking news, Frank, that they got into this whole Christian scene to be famous, right? They want to be an influencer on Instagram. They want to have the huge YouTube channel that pays them a lot of money. They want to do all these things. And yeah, discipleship and yeah, spreading the gospel and all that, that, that's seemingly secondary. You have a lot of pastors, that are not seemingly taking the dictate from scripture that they are going to have to give an account for how they shepherded their flock someday to God. And they seem to be worrying way more about how many followers they have on TikTok, how many books they sell, what conferences they get invited to speak at. And man, people just buy into it because you want your pastor to be cool. You want to bring friends to your, to your church and like the pastor's a cool guy. And like, oh, look, he's got, he's got muscles and look, oh, he's got, you know, these great, the shoes that he wears and look at how cool his clothes are. And oh man, isn't everything so awesome? And gosh, we just buy a hook, line and sinker, don't we, Frank? Well, it's it's a problem for sure, especially for Americans. All right, it's it's an unusually an American problem. But here here's the thing about it: it's not just you know the leader who gets into ministry because he has a motivation that he wants to be famous and he wants people to worship him or or or, or adore him or what have you. Oftentimes. Uh, leaders who are gifted will get into ministry with the purest motives, but they begin to subtly, as their church grows and as their influence spreads, they begin to subtly, uh, I call it the race to the bottom. Without them realizing it, there there is growing up within the human heart the tendency to want to uh, feel entitled. And, that, and that's really that's really the slippery slope uh, for many of these guys. I know some of them personally, all right? I've had conversations face-to-face with some megachurch pastors that crashed and burned. Mm-hmm. Nobody saw it coming, not even them. And the people on the inside, because it's so slow, it's a subtle move in the human heart that uh, it's too late when it's identified. And and basically, you know, what what I what I would say is this. Uh, and I'm going to just be straightforward here. Um, you know, no human being is designed to have that much power. 
Now, when I say that much power, I'm talking about the kind of power and the kind of influence and the kind of prestige that comes in some church structures, okay? No human being can handle that. I don't care who you are. I don't care how full of the Holy Spirit you are. There's a corrupting element. And in some of these structures, Kyle, basically the structure itself, the way it's built, is designed to destroy the person at the top. And there have only been a small number of people who could survive that. I mean, right now, the people that we could point to and say, well, they seem to be doing well in this particular structure. Um, well, maybe today or maybe uh, according to what we can see. Right. Right. Because right. a lot of this stuff subterranean. You know, we don't know about it until later. But here's here's the thing. I give a prescription on how the celebrity culture begins to take root in a, in a Christian's heart. And I talk about ways to get around it, whatever structure you're in. I mean, you don't have to be part of a big church to have that kind of heart that wants the prestige and the power and all that kind of stuff. Right, I mean, right. that's just part of the flesh, you know. Now, now we're we're sort of intermingling uh, Robert Greene's book, you know, into this very issue because I mean, the grab for power. I mean, that's just part of. Uh, unregenerate flesh. I mean, it's just there. And what Green was doing in his book, he's basically highlighting it and saying, look, this is how it works and this is what it looks like. But the Christian is susceptible to that, no matter who you are. And so that's why I wrote that chapter, because I work with a lot of young leaders. Uh, I have masterminds for young uh, gifted leaders who are in ministry. Most of them are men. Um, and and so what, what I tried to teach them is, look, there's some paths here um, that you can go down without even realizing, and it's a path to uh, to suicide, so you, spiritual suicide and shipwreck. So there's some things you need to be knowledgeable knowledgeable about, and so that particular law, law, law number um, five, detest celebrity culture, celebritism, is huge, and and it and it does relate to God's power for sure. So yeah, I, I appreciate you reading those quotes too because. Babylon, you know, the there's a principle of Babylon, and it comes from the Old Testament. It start where did Babylon start? It started out with the Tower of Babel, and what was the Tower of Babel? It was man, right, human beings trying to build a structure to touch the heavens, at all to have a name for themselves, and they were using bricks to do it. Man makes bricks, God makes stone. And so it's human effort, human energy, human zeal to try to reach the heavens, all to make a name for oneself. And so many pastors today, unfortunately, have Babylon dripping from their garments. And so this chapter is really um, both an antidote and also it's a, it's a magnifying glass to kind of highlight the problem. And let me just say again, we're all susceptible, all of us. Yes, of course. Myself included, you know, even with you, since you have the best podcast in the world. I mean, come on. <laughs> so you have to be careful, right? Well, so to that point, Frank, I think it's very, very important. So I, I do something, I do two things that I think are very, very important that I, if you guys want to take, you can take this advice or leave it. So when I get invited to come and speak somewhere, I know that I'm the guy with the podcast. Like I'm the guy with the, you know, the beard and the, and the look and all, all that stuff. And I'm wearing all black when I go and talk because it's just easier. And like, I know that. And I know like I'm the focus of the attention because I'm being paid to go there and speak words out of my face hole. Right. I know that. So two things that I try to do. Number one, I make sure that I go there well before my speech starts <clears throat> and I interact with everybody. 
right? Everybody that's around, whether they're on staff, whether they're not on staff, whether they're a part of the event, whether they're just passing through, I talk to everybody. Because I, I want to them to get used to me because I'm kind of a, you know, f- you know, fun loving, you know, funny guy, like sarcastic, those types of things. And that translates better whenever I get on stage, whenever I can still kind of have that attitude, it kind of loosens everybody up. So that's one thing I do just kind of, Hey, Hey, I'm not special. I'm just, I have a microphone attached to my face. But then the second thing I do is when I do talk to somebody, I try to ask them six questions about them before I will answer any questions about me right? Because the whole night's already focused on me, right? I'm the guy with the microphone. But I asked him like, hey, do you go to this church? Well, hey, where are you from? So I guess what brought you to this event? Because this is not on a normal Sunday. And then I just kind of keep going down. I just want to get to know them a little bit. And what that kind of helps me do is to remember that I'm not the point, that my job is to reflect people back onto the father, that when they look at me, when they want to give me accolades, when they want to, you know, give me the attaboys, which, you know, really feed my personality and, you know, wanting to make sure I do a good job, that kind of helps put me back in my place. So just kind of wanted to say that, that guys, there are a lot of different things that you can do, but if you ever get to the place where you feel like you're the point, you're missing the point. Okay. So now I want to get into uh, another law, law number 10. We'll skip to number 10. It's called refuse to take offense. Let me read a short quote here. As a servant of a God, you can't afford the luxury of being offended. I feel so strongly that this, uh, about this, that I'll put it on in one sentence. The servant of God must be unoffendable. Now I've got some more breaking news for you, Frank. We live in a culture in 2022 or whenever you guys are listening to it, that offense is currency that if you are offendable, you are also laudable and, and you're, you're a beneficiary of that. If somebody harms you, especially verbally, we will elevate you to a level where all of a sudden your level of outrage will equal the level of importance of your opinion. So this seems rather countercultural at this point, man. Exactly. And the whole book is like that. And I appreciate the fact that you gave some practical instruction on some of the ways, you know, a person can curb um, or dilute, you know, celebrity culture. Uh, and, and, you know, as you know, from reading the book, I give practical prescriptions throughout the entire work, because to me, you can give a person a good idea. That's great. And you can even exhort them to do something or not do something. All right, that's fine. But unless you give them a practical handle, right, then it's just ideas. Right. And and it's not going to be fleshed out. So I appreciate you doing that. I'm going to add a third one, too, for your listening audience, hmm. the, two, the excellent two that you had. And that is this, that if you're invited to speak uh, and there are other speakers, pray that they will do better than you. Hmm. And yep. that, that comes from Dallas Willard. Okay. Now, again, that's counterintuitive, <laughs> uh, but that's so much like the Lord, all right? And see, here, here's the thing, too. Also, be prepared to fail because, and this is, again, is, is it just sounds so, um, you know, lopsided. But I, I have a statement in the book. If you are always winning, Jesus Christ is losing. All right. And, and this gets back to this thing about loss and being willing to fail. The, the person who fails the most usually ends up winning because if you're not failing, right, you're not creating, you're not doing, you're not, you're, you're basically uh, motionless because you're stagnated due to fear. You don't want to be criticized. You don't want to, uh, you know, uh, be ostracized. You don't want people to think poor of you. So 
many people are passive and they won't do anything. They won't put work out into the world. They won't try things, you know, for the Lord, for the kingdom of God because of fear. But, you know, ask Thomas Edison about failure uh, 1,000 times, right? And his response to that was, well, I didn't really fail a thousand times. What happened is I took 1,000 little steps to get to the light bulb. Right. Uh, but when I go somewhere, I'm prepared to fail because it's not about me. It's about the Lord. And that puts all the weight on him, right? If he doesn't show up, I mean, I'll prepare, but I don't trust my preparation. I trust the Lord. So that's another little tip. But on to your question um, about taking offense. You're right. We live in a culture of outrage, right? but outrage is not a fruit of the Spirit. And there are two things here. There's a passage, uh, and I quote the passages in, uh, in, in the book from the scriptures, which I believe uh, is fully inspired, reliable, and authoritative. It is to the glory of kings to overlook an offense. Now, there's profound wisdom in that statement. The other thing is what Jesus said about John the Baptist. Now, here John the Baptist served God more radically and profoundly than most of us who have ever breathed oxygen ever have. And here, what does he get for all his service? What does he get for watching his numbers uh, begin to vanish because they're following Jesus, no longer following him? What does he get for all of his sacrifice? You know, the guy didn't even have a decent meal right? Uh, Look in his closet. (laughs) What is he wearing? He's wearing stuff that, you know, would make you look like a a kook today. Uh, And even in that day, it was strange. I mean, he he was a bizarre sight to behold. He lived in the wilderness since he was 14 years old, all because God called him out there. And now he's in prison, right? And Jesus, his cousin, the one uh, for whom he was doing all of these things, his, the sacrificing his life, laying his life down, giving his life for the father, father. John's in prison. It's the darkest time in his life. Jesus doesn't even visit him. Think about that. Right. He sends messengers. And here's what they say, because John wants to know, are you the one? I mean, did I miss it here? <laughs> I'm about to die here, probably. Are you the one, the promised one? And they say, well, you know, John, this is coming from straight from Jesus. You know, the blind see, the deaf hear, the lepers walk, etc. In other words, yes, I'm the one. And then he says this. These are chilling words, but powerful words. Blessed is he who is not offended in me. And here's, here's the point. To be a Christian who is going to be wielding God's power, uh, to be a Christian who is in ministry in any capacity and is going to be effective, you and I have to be unoffendable. Now, that doesn't mean we approve of what happens, right? That doesn't mean that, you know, all vile actions don't repulse us. But to take personal offense, and when people take personal offense, it always is a reflection on God themselves, because at the bottom of that, they're blaming God. Why did you let this happen, Lord? Or why did you allow this to happen? Or why did you cause this to happen? And so to be unoffendable, that is, there is such power in that, Kyle. All right. There is tremendous power. And you talk about 
uh, being a man, you know, it, it takes God to be a man. And God uh, designed human beings, both men and women, to live by his divine life. And the divine life of Christ that's indwell, indwells every true believer, every true disciple of Christ, that is a life that's unoffendable. And we can say, Lord, I don't understand. And these people did this. I don't agree with it, but I will. I refuse to take offense. I'm not going to let this trip me up. I'm going to walk forward. And God is an expert at drawing straight with crooked lines. He is going to turn this to good in some way. And he always does. And he promised he would do that. Romans 8, still in the Bible. When I think it's important for us to all realize as well that if you seek out offense, if you look for a chance to be offended, it is amazing. You will find it. Like you will find an opportunity to be offended. Like I've talked to so many people in situations where they gave the person the benefit of the doubt when they said something that sounded off color or something that sounded like it was maybe mean spirited or rude. And for the most part, they just being patient with the person or asking a follow-up question like, Hey, you said this, did you mean that? Or did, is this kind of what you meant? It usually leads to a better outcome because typically people aren't incredibly, you know, raucous and terrible to your face. All right. I want to skip to law number 14 and this is receive correction. So I'll read this quote here. If you want God to use you in his work, he will deal ruthlessly with those areas of your life to which you're blind. Other members of the body who know you, however, can see them clearly. If you are in the flesh, you will react when corrected. If you are in the spirit, you will act like a sponge asking questions to understand what part of your life needs to be penetrating light, needs the penetrating light of God to expose and transform. How a person responds when corrected reveals volumes about the individual's character. So uh, Joby Martin, who, who is a pastor that I know listens to the show, is a good friend of the show, has been on a couple of times. The last time he came on, we, we talked about on that particular episode, how he and I kind of had a Galatians 2, Peter and Paul moment where he called me out for some of the things I was saying on my show that I didn't think I was communicating, but that people were perceiving me saying, and I was like, oh crap, like I was being very imprecise with my language, specifically how it pertained to certain churches of a certain size that do certain things and, and blah, 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 and all those different things. And for whatever reason that day, like I was in the spirit and I, and I wasn't in the flesh and I'm normally the guy that reacts from the flesh and gets real angry and defensive and does all those different things. But it was such an interesting moment for me because it was like immediately I knew he was right in what he was saying. And I knew it was just going to be, you know, basically chasing my tail, trying to find a way to weasel out of this correction. <laughs> and it was such a beautiful thing that this was a guy, he and I weren't really even friends at that point. We just had each other's numbers. And he just kind of said, all right, I'm going to throw some chips in the middle of the table. And you're, if you get mad and don't like it, no skin off my back. I did what I knew God would want me to do. I modeled after what Paul did uh, to Peter when they were in Antioch and the Judaizers were screwing around and all that stuff, right? But man, just like we love being offended, we hate being corrected. And so it's like, how can we be so stupid on things that literally we know would be better if we were on the opposite ends of the spectrum? Yeah, well, you're right. I mean, it's any kind of correction is, is hard on the flesh, okay? But in another chapter, I talk about the different kinds of critics. Oh, well, so that, that's Law 15, yeah, distinguish between critics. And that was yeah. a note that I wrote in the margin, which was don't take critique from someone you wouldn't take advice from. But yeah, go ahead. Yeah, because, you know, it, it's important where the correction comes from and how we respond to it. So, for example, there are supporters that like your friend who corrected you. He's a supporter. He loves you. He cares about you. He's in your corner. He wants to see you succeed. That kind of correction, brother, is priceless. Right. I that agree. kind of correction is, it, it is, um, it's beyond value. I mean, it, it, it will 
create transformation in a, in a human being, uh, a believer beyond so many other things. So always, always receive correction from supporters, even if it hurts, because you have to realize it's going to make you a better person and a better Christian. The other kind of uh, uh, critic, critic is the objector. And these are people, they don't really maybe, they may not know you. Um, they're definitely not your supporter, but maybe they came across a book. Maybe they read a book that you wrote that someone recommended and they, they don't like this. And, you know, they don't like how you pronounce this word here or spell this word right. uh, or they disagree with one comment that you made. Well, it's fine to listen to somebody like that, but don't don't ingest that because right. there's no substance to it. Let it go. But but the mistake, though, many people make is they get defensive. Uh, on the one hand, and I have a whole <laughs> chapter on that, don't defend yourself and the reasons why. And Jesus talked about this um, in detail. But the other thing is people get discouraged, right? And they say, well, I don't want to put anything in the world because of this person. And here's the thing you have to focus on if you're in ministry. Discouragement is part and parcel of it, and you're going to get criticized. You're going to get shot at. You're going to get mistreated. Um, you're you're going to uh, uh, basically have injustices happen to you. But you're going to have to learn to dance with all of that and take the high road at all times because that's where God's power resides. And the third critic is the troll, and the trolls ought to be ignored. Don't even pay attention to them. But but I'll close with this point on this section, and that is, Kyle, you you may have uh, put, put, put out a podcast episode. Maybe it's this one. And you're going to get uh, lots of encouraging comments. Um, I loved it, loved the show, loved what you did, loved the questions you asked. And then you might have that one person who just rips you. Right. Because they didn't like the way you said this and they didn't like the way you did that. And why didn't you ask this? And why didn't you say this? And what happens is very often because people pleasing is (laughs) is another law I deal with uh, and it's endemic in the ministry. But uh, what happens is it's easy to focus on that and have that ruin your day, that comment. And and some people, they draw back because they say, look, you know, I just got ripped. I just got criticized. I'm, I'm not, I'm going to, I think I'm going to do it differently or I'm going to stop doing it. Well, here's the thing. You're not focusing on that person that wrote you and said, oh, wow, that podcast episode just uh, brought me to a new level in the Lord or what you said on that, on that particular episode changed my life. That's what you have to look at. And that's who you're serving. The person that wrote you that nasty uh, comment and that ripped you a new one, your podcast is not for that person, not for them. It's not for them. Well, that's what I say to all ministers. Hey, just, if you learn these words, it wasn't for them. This will help you a great deal to overcome discouragement and to be able to sift through criticism. Well, and the funny thing about that, I, I agree with just about all that. The, the thing that I tell people is like, look, I've invited a lot of people to stop listening to my podcast from the beginning. I mean, in the single digit episodes where, you know, we're close to episode 400 or whatever, like in the single digit episodes, I would get these long emails from people that disagreed with what I said. And how I said it, you know, just like how you were describing a second ago. And when I told those people, I was like, if you didn't like what I said on this episode, 
you're going to hate what I say on the next one. And there's definitely going to be some time in the future where I'm going to say something else that really, you know, offends your sensibilities. Like there's two and a half million podcasts out there, brother. Mine's just not for you. Like I, you like I, I get it because I would love to be corrected if I'm wrong. Yes. If I'm factually inaccurate about something and you set the record straight, like I'm gonna have to set the record straight on a on a future episode here coming up soon because I, I read a news story incorrectly and then I was corrected by one of our listeners. I was like, oh, dad gummin, I should have spent five more minutes uh, re- researching this. And I would have been able to describe it correctly. I'm okay with that correction. But if it's like, yeah, I, d- I would have really said that. I would have said this. It's like, why do you think as a stranger in my email inbox that I'm going to change, go back and edit a show that I did two years ago because of something that just didn't hit your ears correctly. Like it's a, it's a level of arrogance that I, I don't really understand for people. And like, I'm exactly like what you say. Like I see all the, 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 um, reviews that come in and I get a lot, you know, almost all the reviews are five star, but when I get a one or two or three star review, I'm like, it! like I wish I could talk to that person, but you can't respond to the reviews. And I'm that guy. Like, I don't care. Like I, I remember arguing with a professor in college, Frank, I got a 98 on a test and I felt like I should have got a hundred. So I went and argued with the professor and he's looking at me like, you got the best grade in the class. What are you complaining for? But I'm like, no, no, no. Justice needs to be served. And I answered this correctly. You just didn't like how I worded it. But man, that causes more consternation than probably what it's worth. So I appreciate those two laws, especially. Now we get into law 23 and this is resist bitterness. So I want to read a quote from this because the quote kind of caught me funny. And so I want to talk about it a little bit. It's a short quote. It's this pain is inevitable. It will happen usually at the hands of other Christians. Okay. So obviously bitterness, however, is a choice, right? So that that's how you end that usually at the hands of other Christians, bitterness, however, is a choice. What caught me weird was when you say pain is inevitable and it's usually at the hands of other Christians. What I feel like that almost does is that opens up this, this category for people to opt into, which is the church hurt category right? So, so the church hurt me. And typically when you ask them follow-up questions about what exactly the hurt was, the church was not going to allow them to keep sinning in a particular way. And so that hurt their feels. And then they, they changed that. Now, obviously the church hurt categories for people who were abused by, by clergy or by pastors, whether physically, emotionally, or spiritually, people that were taken advantage of people that were stolen from like people that were excommunicated unjustly, that's church hurt. The church saying, no, you can't live with your boyfriend before you get married. Uh, no, you can't have this same sex relationship. No, we won't allow you to get married in our church. That's not church hurt. That's just the church keeping you from sinning. But you know, I, I was curious why you, why you couched it that way, that pain is inevitable. And it's usually as in way more of, of an inevitability than anything else at the hands of other Christians. Help me understand that. Well, I don't know how long you've been a Christian brother, but uh, throw out the church hurt. Cause I, I wasn't, that wasn't even on my radar mm. and nor was, you know, people uh, correcting you because of some boneheaded thing you did. That was not on my radar. Okay. I was talking about the fact that if you're going to live the Christian life and you're around believers, all right, now, by around believers, I don't mean you sit in a pew on Sunday morning, you shake hands when the pastor says, let's have uh, two minutes of fellowship. <laughs> right. <laughs> and then yeah. and then you never see them uh, again until next Sunday. I'm talking about you're someone where you have relationships with other believers. You have close relationship with other believers. The fact is, let's just look at Jesus. I was wounded in the house of my friends. Who were the people who inflicted the most pain? It was 
in his context, uh, God's people. All right. Mm. That's who it was. It was, I mean, the Romans, yeah, they put the nails in his hands, but who ordered it? Right. It was God's people who said, you know, crucify him. It was God's people. All right. And then you switch over to Paul of Tarsus. And here he is, you know, an ex-Pharisee. He is raising up the house of God all over the Roman Empire. And who were his greatest enemies? And the people he talked about in his letters. Read, read the First Thessalonians, for example. Who does he single out? He singles out the Christians who were the Hebrew Christians. They, you know, they were kind of his blood kin, but they were zealous of the law. And they hated Paul, and they trashed him. The whole letter of Galatians, he's responding, the first two chapters, to what they were saying about them. These were the Christian uh, Hebrew believers in Jerusalem, and some of them followed him wherever he went and basically stirred up the crowds to persecute him. I actually believe that's what the thorn in the flesh was. When he writes about the thorn in the flesh— and you read exactly the context of that statement, he's talking about all the persecution he, he received everywhere he went, right? And it was coming, basically, there was one man who was leading it, and he came out of the Church of Jerusalem, and he had a band of people, and Paul basically says, the one who is troubling you, he says this in the book of Galatians, he's singling out the ringleader. And lots of scholars agree with this. There was one ringleader from the Jerusalem church, but he was a fellow believer. That's my point. Now, Paul, of course, calls them, uh, calls them false brethren. <laughs> but here's the thing. You know, Christians are imperfect people. All of us are, right? And if you're going to be around God's people, you're going to be hurt by them. Right. I was wounded in the house of my friends. And, and it's very easy for a believer to become embittered, especially if the pain is coming from another Christian, right? Hey, they're supposed to be a Christian. They're not supposed to be treating me this way. Right. But every Christian I know who has been in ministry, and I'll speak for myself, the, the pain, most of the pain has not come from the unbelieving world. It's come from fellow Christians. And, but the thing is, God can use that in tremendous ways to break us rather than to embitter us. And by breaking, I'm talking about the kind of breaking that the New Testament talks about, where there's less of us and more of Christ. Um, yeah, so so that, that whole chapter is about bitterness, and I give a, a practical prescription on how to overcome it, because if a Christian becomes embittered, they're out of the race, all right? You're, you're done. If you become bitter at other people and God, ultimately it's always at God because God allowed it, um, whether you're in touch with that or not. Um, and, and, and basically that's how Christians get shipwrecked is because they allow bitterness to take root in their hearts. And that's where, that's where the writer of Hebrews, he makes that profound statement, you know, do not allow a root of bitterness to grow up in your heart, uh, because it will not only take you out, it will defile other people and bitter people just spew venom everywhere against, you know, the people who hurt them. And then this is, gets into the church hurt you're talking about, yeah. all Christians. I tried that. I'm not going to church anymore, whatever. So, yeah, I do talk about that quite a bit. But unfortunately, this is part of, of being a believer is the friction and the conflict and often the, the, the hurt does come at the hands of other believers.
And I think you use the exact right word, which is venom. Like these, these people that are bitter and gosh, we've all been around those people. And I've got some people that are really close to me. That's just, man, if you were to describe them in three words, bitter bitterness would be one of the top three words. And it's just, man, I've never been around a bitter person that gave me life. You know, when they were being bitter, these are people that just absolutely drag you down. So I'm going to go to law 25 now, Frank, and that's defy the conventional wisdom. So let me read this quote here. The Church of Jesus Christ is dying from a lack of imagination and creativity. The average minister today has grown up in a system that never dares to do things differently. I'm talking about its practices, not its doctrines. Countless pastors cannot seem to think beyond the 500-year-old Protestant worship service given to us by John Calvin, and yet it's losing people by the droves. The Lord is looking for servants willing to defy the conventional wisdom in every arena, whether ministry, evangelism, church, fellowship, prayer, discipleship, Bible reading, leadership, books, blogs, podcasts, advertising, or whatever. Okay. So I know what you're going for here, Frank. What I feel like though, is that people that were trying to defy the conventional wisdom, what they did is they ignored that quote right there in the middle, which is, I'm not talking about, or I'm talking about its practices, not its doctrines. Right. And what it's done is it's caused a lot of churches to water down the gospel to water down the doctrines, to water down some of those icky parts of the Bible, to create this seeker-sensitive model where we never talk about your sin, we never talk about your depravity, we just give you a lot of life advice, we give you TED Talks and we sprinkle a few Bible verses on top of it so that we can keep our tax-exempt status, and there's a lot of flash, and there's a lot of smoke, and there's a lot of style, but there's absolutely no substance. Do you feel like that's a fair statement? Yeah. Um, the only thing I would add to it is those people you're describing are not defying the conventional wisdom. They're not trying to defy the conventional wisdom. What they're trying to do is swell their numbers, okay, by succumbing and accommodating to the culture. That's what that is, what you're okay. describing. What I'm talking about is the fact that Jesus Christ is the most creative uh, person uh, in the universe. Okay. He, he exudes creativity. And when a Christian taps into the creativity of Christ, uh, it is remarkable. Right. And the word remarkable simply means it's worth making a remark about. In other words, it's so compelling and it's so different, so unique that you can't help but talk about it and share it with your friends. Hey, did you see what so-and-so did or said? And so, my point there is not to defy the conventional wisdom, um, the establishment, okay? That's another word for it. Uh, in other words, this this penchant to do things the way we've always always done them. And again, I'm talking about practices, not, not orthodoxy, not beliefs. Mm -hmm. um, the penchant is just to go along with it because, you know, it, it, to be someone who is holding... Uh, traditions, and I'm talking about non-scriptural traditions. There are traditions that are biblical, and, and Paul talked about that. But to hold non-biblical uh, traditions is somehow sacrosanct is one of the reasons why um, Christians very often don't have much imagination. I mean, if you look at yeah. the average movie that's been made by a Christian, you tell me if it even comes close to some of the secular worldly directors and 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 uh, cinematographers and the movies they put out. You know what I mean? I mean, I, I don't know about you, but every Christian movie I have seen, most most cases, there's some exceptions, 
are pretty poor and pretty mm -hmm. uncreative. That's just one small example. But that chapter really goes into the fact that there is a whole universe of creativity that God's people can tap into. But it, but it takes thinking outside the box and saying, you know what, it's okay to say no to the conventional establishment wisdom that's telling me this is the way we've always done it. Let's keep doing it. And uh, so, yeah, that's that's one of the chapters in the book. And I give examples coming out of uh, uh, the secular world. You know, uh, oh, well, you know, you've read the chapter, but I talk about the band Led Zeppelin, which right. many people consider to be the greatest rock band in history. Now, I'm not I'm not endorsing Led Zeppelin <laughs> as 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 role models or anything like that. But I'm saying they defied the conventional wisdom. They said, we're not going to put out singles. They said, we're going to put out an album and we're not going to have our name on it at all. I mean, they did some remarkable things. And what ended up happening was um, their, the sales of their albums went through the roof. Uh, so so there, there is something to be said about the creativity of Christ. And that's what I'm trying to trying to challenge God's people with. Um, yeah. No, I, I appreciate that sentiment because, you know, you hear these, these Christian filmmakers because there's great ones out there. Harold Cronk, you know, Dallas Jenkins that does the chosen, like right. that do super right. high quality stuff. Yep. But then you got these other people that make these terrible movies and then they say, well, that's when, you know, when they get pounded for it being awful, they're like, well, people just hate it because I'm a Christian. They hate it because he has a yeah, gospel message. It's wrong. like, no, they hate it because it sucks. Like, that's the difference. Like, this isn't right. your cross to bear. This isn't, you know, uh, the right. world coming after you. This isn't any of those things. This isn't the thorn in Paul's side. This is just the fact <laughs> that you suck at this. And the, the thing about it is, is if you understand the beauty and grandeur of the gospel, your music, your, your paintings, your dance, your movies, your web design, your podcast, all of that should be of an, a quality that is astonishing because you you kind of have the keys to the kingdom. You have the secrets, right? Like oh, of the, the beauty that God was able to give us, not just through creation, but through the fulfillment of the gospel message. Um, I'm going to go to episode law number 32 now, and that's stay in school. So there's a bugaboo one for me, but let's get after Consequently, when I say stay in school, I mean keep doing your homework. Learn all you can about church history. Read the biographies of men and women of God who, upon whose shoulders you stand. Keep reading, keep studying, keep learning from both the living and those who have gone before us. My big bugaboo here, Frank, is men don't read. When I talk to these publishing houses, right, and, and you know some of them because you publish with several different publishing houses, you know, you know, it doesn't matter which one it is. Is it HarperCollins or Zondervan or, or Tyndale or uh, Thomas Nelson? It doesn't matter. They say, yeah, men don't read, especially Christian men. The majority of Christian men's books are bought by women for men. We hear that all the time. And I yell and I scream and I shame the men that listen to this podcast that don't read, that literally turn their brains off when they graduated from high school or from college. They haven't read a book since it was assigned to them. They're doing nothing to develop their brains aside from reading Twitter and getting ready for their next fantasy football draft. It drives me absolutely insane as a guy that didn't grow up reading a lot of books. I didn't come from a family uh, of, of readers and, and learned people reading our leather bound books and our smoking jackets. That wasn't my life. That's something I've developed as an adult because it's like, wait a minute, I can get a lot of, you know, 
good stuff from podcasts. I can get a lot of good stuff from YouTube videos and from documentaries on Amazon Prime. I can, I can get all these different things. But reading is another way that I can take in content that will help me be a better person, be a better father, be a better husband, be a better Christian podcast host, all these different things. But guys just ignore that. And I get it. It's not as fun as binge watching a show on Netflix. But my goodness, like why don't men read? Well, I have a few things to say about that in a way of encouragement. All right. First of all, I have authored uh, over 30 books and uh, eight of them have been bestsellers. And so uh, I'm someone who writes, but I also read. But here's the thing. I don't like reading. I yeah. do it. I do it a lot. I mean, you should see my 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 uh, studio here. I have books everywhere. I, I have hundreds of books, thousands of books, probably. And thousands of books pass through my hands because I do research. And so I get a lot of them through the interlibrary loan. But I don't like the act of reading. And the longer the book, the more I despise it. But here's the thing I would say. Um, I read because of the benefit. That's why I do it. But here's the thing I would say to all the guys who really don't care for reading. Number one, you're not abnormal. Number two, there's something called an audio book. Yeah. And I would encourage you strongly to start listening to audiobooks. Now, if I could go ahead and mention one of my books uh, that has touched a lot of men, uh, I have gotten more uh, emails and letters from men who said they wept, which is a shocker to me because I had no idea this would have the effect. But I wrote a book some years ago called God's Favorite Place on Earth. And what it is, it's the story of Lazarus. Uh, who, you know, Jesus loved him. The scripture makes that clear. It says it. He loved Lazarus. These guys were close. And uh, Lazarus is an old man and he's getting ready to die. And he's now telling the story of the time when he met Jesus in his little village called Bethany. And uh, one of the eye openers that has been true for many leaders and, and pastors and even theologians, they've said to me, they never saw before that the little village of Bethany was God's favorite place on earth. Jesus had no place to lay his head. He was rejected in every quarter from birth, Bethlehem, he was rejected there, Samaria, Nazareth, and Jerusalem, which basically put him to death. There was only one place on the planet where he could lay his head and call home, and it was this little village called Bethany. And the whole book is about the significance of Bethany and what it represents for us today. But Lazarus, as an old man, is telling the story. And for some reason, Kyle, lots of men said they wept through it. So mm. I would I would encourage people, uh, guys, you know, and and gals, to go ahead and uh, listen to that book on audio. And the other thing too is Forty Eight Laws of Spiritual Power is also. Uh, on audio. And if you dared to uh, listen to, I'm talking to the audience now, if you dared listen to Kyle's recommendation of the 48 Laws book that is very popular with celebrities and prisoners, you'll <laughs> want to read 48 Laws of Spiritual Power to see the exact opposite message. And it's easier to read. The chapters are much shorter. And if you don't really dig reading, you'll get through this book pretty quick. Yeah, I got to be honest. The, the the audiobook thing is such a blessing. We just had uh, a guy on here recently that he helps produce 900 audiobooks a year. His name is Gabe Wicks. And it's like a lot of that is going back to backlog. 
So it's books yeah. that were never put on audio because, you know, making these CDs and selling them for 75 bucks so that somebody could, you know, go through a book that was just too cumbersome. But now we literally just click an app on our phone and then, and then we got it from there. Um, so, uh, I want to go ahead and just, just wrap up the book there because I had a couple of other questions, uh, that I wanted to get to before we get you out of here. So, so one random question that I have for you is obviously, I think you just mentioned, you know, like close to three dozen books that you've written, but I want to know, Frank, if you had to delete your entire catalog of books, but you could only leave one book that you've written to date for all of humanity, for all of time from here on out, which one would it be and why? Well, Kyle, the part of the interview for difficult questions is over. So nope. I'm only answering nope. simple questions. No, now. and here's the thing. I'm not oh. going to let you give me two <laughs> no, or three. I'm not going to let you do any of that non kind of obfuscation <laughs> know, stuff. You get one and you got to do no, it. No, I, I, I actually... Um, that was intended to provoke a laugh, but uh, that's an easy one for me to answer. And I've, I've actually said it in, in so many terms. Um, my book that came out a few years ago, it's called Insurgents Reclaiming the Gospel of the Kingdom. Insurgents Reclaiming the Gospel of the Kingdom. And that is a, a big book, but it has very short chapters in it, so it's very easy to read. But it's all about reclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. I believe that the, the powerful, titanic, earth-shaking, mind-blowing gospel of the kingdom that Jesus preached, that Paul preached, has been lost to us. And so what I do in that book as I seek to reclaim it and unfold it and expand it. There's six parts to the book. They all do something different. I've had more responses to that book than anything I've written. I call it my signature work. But you have to get through. Um, you, you don't want to quit. So if you read part one and it doesn't grab you, just go on to part two. Because all the parts, the six parts, do something very different. And they speak to readers in a different way. They all go together. But don't don't quit if you just start with part one and, you, you know, you can't get into it. Just go on to the next one and go on to the next one. Do the same. But that that's the signature book. That's the answer to your question, sir. OK, well, I appreciate because sometimes I'll get people that will be like, well, I don't know. I kind of have to do this one for this. And this. No, no. I got to choose between my children. Yeah, what? I don't care. Here's the reality. Everyone's got a favorite kid. You're lying if you say you love them equally. You don't. You're a <laughs> you're liar. Not, a you're a, li well, you're a got, rotten liar. <laughs> that's exactly what it is. Well, the next question that, that I have, well, obviously this one's going to be a lot easier than the last one, but obviously you got a lot of things that are, you got a lot of irons in the fire. There's a lot of ideas that you have kicking around in your head. So talk to me about some future books. I'm sure you're writing one right now, but I want, I want some like you know, something good for the guys that listen to the end of this interview. Give us some spoilers. Give us some stuff that you haven't told anybody about, like some stuff that you're really thinking about digging into and writing books about. Well, I'm working on one now that's just a bear cat. It's 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 really difficult. I've I've spent a gosh, a pound of flesh and a pint of blood on it already. But it is a book that's going to tell the story of the first century church from Pentecost to Patmos. It's going to put the book of Acts. Uh, it's going to tell that story and blend together all the epistles. So basically, before you get to read Galatians, you're going to find out who the Galatians were. What were they like? Uh, what was going on there in Galatia? Where in the story of Acts did Paul write Galatians? How does it all fit together? See, because right now, our New Testament is, is grossly out of order, okay? Romans is the first letter. Well, Paul didn't write Romans first, okay? Then you have, what, 1 Corinthians. Paul didn't write 1 Corinthians second. And so the whole 
New Testament is in a in a mess. Uh, it's in a chaotic order, and the reason is because those letters were when they were compiled. Uh, the letters of the New Testament they were compiled according to length. Romans is the longest letter. Philemon is the shortest in Paul's work. So that's why you know Romans is first. First Corinthians is. You know, that's the second longest book. And so basically to try to understand what happened in the New Testament and try to understand those letters because they're written in a context, Kyle, it's kind of like getting a, a getting, getting an audio book and all the chapters are out of order. And now you're listening first to chapter seven and then you go to chapter 23 and after that is chapter three and after that is chapter 19. It's all out of order. And that's how the New Testament is. So what I'm doing with this book, and I have scholars who are helping me with it, is putting it all into a gripping narrative. You find out all of what was going on in the in the first century in the New Testament. And then when you open up Galatians, you open up First Thessalonians, you open up First Corinthians, you know those people. You know what Paul was feeling when he wrote it. You know what was going on. And it just opens up the Bible like, like like you couldn't believe. So that's coming out, God willing, in the next two years. I did a very early version of this, Kyle, back in 2005. Um, I wrote it in a hurry. Uh, I didn't have half the resources, not even a fraction of the resources I have now. I didn't have scholars review it. So, you know, if you come across something that sounds like that uh, before 2024, 2025, 25, don't buy it because it's it's really bad. Um, okay. but this new book is going to be, I think it's going to be revolutionary uh, to the Christian faith. And that's my hope. Well, obviously keep me and our audience in mind whenever that gets going, because that sounds incredibly interesting. But Frank, we've gone everywhere in this conversation. I really appreciate you letting us dig down. And guys, again, what did we cover? I mean, seven or eight uh, of the laws, there's 48 in this book. Again, it'll be in the show notes so you can check it out. But that's all for me. Is there anything else you want to get off your chest? No, I, the only thing I would say is if listeners were intrigued with any of this, they can go to 48laws.com, 48laws.com, and they can test drive the book for free and listen to some other interviews where we, you know, get into the content. But yeah, that's that's all I would say, Kyle. I appreciate it. I enjoyed this. Now yeah. I know now I know why you you are the number one podcaster in the world. Now I number know. One, number one in the world, guys. If you didn't about, know. Baby, and it's not going to your head either. I love it. I if love you it. didn't know, you do know now. Frank Viola, thank you for coming <laughs> on on Daunted Life, a man's podcast. All right. There you go, guys. I hope you enjoyed my time with Frank Viola. But before we let you go, we are going to do a quick resilience boost. At Undaunted Life, our mission is equipping men to push back darkness with content that forges spiritual, mental, and physical resilience. So the link that I've got for you today, I've got a link to the 48laws.com, which he mentioned in the interview, a link to his website, a link to all of his books, but then also an Amazon link to where you can go and buy the 48 Laws of Spiritual Power. All right, guys, thanks so much for listening to the show. We do appreciate it. Wherever you're listening to this, please subscribe, rate, and leave us a positive five-star review. If you want me to come speak live at your event or on your podcast, just shoot me an email to info at undaunted.life. That's I-N-F-O at undaunted.life. Follow us on Instagram and like us on Facebook and check out our website for everything else, including how to donate to keep more content like this coming your way. Just go to www.undaunted.life. And as always, we want to thank the band August Burns Red for allowing us to use their music for our content. The music on this podcast is their song Cutting the Tides, which is off their 10th anniversary re-recording of their album, Leveler. The links are in the description. I'm your host, Kyle Thompson. Remember, keep pushing back darkness, keep forging spiritual, mental, and physical resilience, keep seeking the Lion of Judah.